coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. And this relatively young white guy, he's about 33 years old, seemed like a good guy, but he's protested. He said, look, I don't know why we're spending four hours on this topic. You know, he said, I don't even see race. Nobody's ever been prejudiced against me. I don't have an issue with, I'm not prejudiced. And so I don't know why we're even talking about this. This seems like a waste of my time. And I said, so what do you guys think? And people were furious. People thought, yeah, it's fine. It is a waste of your time, but this is, you may not see it, but this is a big issue for us. This is the first time we've I've ever been able to talk about what it felt like being here as the only Black woman in this group. Honestly, he wasn't trying to be rude. He just, it wasn't part of his struggle. And when it's not part of your struggle, it's hard to feel the compassion. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeblassingame and I am your host. And I am so honored and excited to welcome my friend Roland Williams onto the podcast. All right, get ready. This man is so accomplished. Roland is the founder and president of Free Life Enterprises Counseling and Consulting Services. He is the coordinator of chemical dependency studies at Cal State East Bay. He's the director of the United Auburn Indian Community Recovery Program. He was the chairman of the Clinical Advisory Board for Lion Rock Recovery and Innovative Online Solutions Outpatient Program. He was the founder and director of VIP Recovery Coaching, an international coaching company providing recovery coaching for high-profile clients in their environment. As a clinical consultant, he helped set up the first abstinence-based addiction treatment center in Amsterdam, Holland, and has worked with addicts and treatment centers in Japan, Switzerland, Russia, Thailand, Costa Rica, England, Holland, Mexico, France, the Philippines, Dominican Republic, Nepal, and Italy. Mr. Williams has three published books, Relapse Prevention Counseling for African-Americans, Relapse Warning Signs for African-Americans, and Relapse Prevention Workbook for African-Americans, written solely by Mr. Williams. He recently published Recovery is a Verb, a workbook by Roland Williams. If you haven't caught on, Roland is impressive in every sense of the word. It is safe to say that there are a few places in the addiction world that Roland has not ventured. Not only is he a wonderful human being, but he is also a personal friend. As you will hear in our personal conversation, Roland tried to help my aunt, who eventually passed away as a result of her addiction. And that is how he came in contact with my family. So he has known me since I got sober and my family and our history. And he is just a wealth of knowledge, an incredible clinician and educator, a super, super smart and kind human being. And his recovery and mentorship has meant so, so much to me. And I hope that you get as much out of his talk as I did personally. I was just reminded of how much he knows and understands and just what an important piece of our field he is and has been. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Get ready for a good one. Without further ado, I give you Roland Williams. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Roland, thank you so much for being here. This is very exciting because I get to see you. And also you have an incredible story that people need to hear. So really excited. And I want to start with a little bit about your background, your recovery, and what it was like. You have a very interesting story and perspective. So will you take us back to either Germany or Chicago? Yeah, I'll try to do the Reader's Digest version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, my I've been clean and sober since June 10th, 1986. 
And I got cleaned one time. I had one clean day. I went to treatment one time. And contrary to popular belief that relapse is part of our recovery, I've learned that that doesn't mean you get to use. What that means is that you might not always be doing the right thing. So even clean and sober, I've had some periods where I felt like I was in full relapse mode without picking up a drink or a drug. I've never picked up a drink or a drug since I got clean. So I think that's important to mention before I get into the story that a lot of people do get clean from the first time out and they stay clean and sober. So everybody thinks that they're going, they have to relapse and you don't but you may wind up in relapse mode. The other thing that I think that's important to mention is that I didn't get clean and sober for myself. I didn't care that people say you can't get clean and sober for somebody else. You can't do it for your wife or your partner or your parents or your job or your kids. And I believe any reason you get clean and sober is a good reason. And if I had waited until I felt good enough about myself to stop drinking and using, I might not have ever stopped. Because at the time that I was in the end of my using, I couldn't stand myself. I, I was fine with dying. Death is not a deterrent for us. I got clean and sober because of my kid, my son, who was four years old at the time. I cared enough about him to stop, not enough about me. And my higher power used my love for him to be the motivation for me to stop using. And his, he'll be 40 in a couple of weeks. And every all his life, I've been telling him, you're my inspiration for being clean. So I think that's also important to mention. Whatever reason you stop is a good reason. So my history is that I was born in Germany. I was the result of a one-night stand. My mother was German. My father was an American GI who I never met in my life, never met my father. I was able to find my birth mom when I was maybe 32 years old. So I did have a relationship with my German mom until she passed away six years ago. But I was, um, as soon as I was born, they took me from her because they were surprised to see she had a biracial baby. And I was taken at the, from the delivery room to the, an orphanage in Germany. And I was adopted by a black family from Chicago, a military family. And I, I moved from Germany when I was five years old to Chicago, where I was raised. Like many people who have struggles with substance use disorders, I felt different. I felt like I wasn't good enough. I felt something was wrong with me. I didn't fit in. And I had all those reasons to reinforce that. There were no biracial people in my neighborhood. At my school, I didn't look like anybody in my family. Yeah, I mean, although there are a lot of Black people who are light-complected, light I didn't feel like... I knew I had white blood in me. I was 50% white. I didn't like that, by the way, um, because it made me different. I used to have to fight all the time. One more reason that I felt different and not a part of. And I think that everybody has their version of that. It might not be the, the race or the religion or the... It's just something about addicts and alcoholics or people with this substance use disorder pattern is that we oftentimes feel like we don't fit in and we feel different. And one of the places that we feel connected it, one of the first things that made me feel connected, that made me feel okay, that made me feel brave, that made me feel competent was using. The first time I used, I realized I can do this. I'm good at this. And I didn't feel good at anything else. I didn't feel good at fighting and dancing or playing basketball and roller skating and talking to the girls at school and social situations, nothing. But when I started getting high, I thought, oh, I'm good at this. And I have no fear and I excelled. And that was the first thing for me. And so my drug addiction took off. I grew up in the south side of Chicago. There was a lot of drugs in my community. A lot of people selling drugs and using drugs. And the thing was, is that you weren't an addict unless you injected drugs till you start shooting up. So that was addiction. Everything else was just how we roll. I, I left home early at 15 years old. I got into a fight with one of my stepfathers. I had two, two stepfathers, the one who adopted me and the a second one, both named Clarence, by the way. And one was a happy alcoholic. The other one was a violent alcoholic. And I, um, I got, couldn't stand Clarence, number two. We got into a big fight. I needed to get out of Chicago. I walked into a recruiter's office on a Thursday night. I was 16 years old. He said, I said, can I go to the army? He said, yeah, of course you can. And he said, how old are you? I said, how do I need to be? He said, 17. And I'm thinking I'm only 16. So I said, I'm only 16. He said, well, can you get somebody to sign some paperwork says you're 17? And I said, um, I don't know. And he said, well, you tell your parents if they sign the paperwork that we'll give them part of your paycheck. And my mom signed the paperwork. And that Sunday, I went in on a Thursday to the recruiter's office. Sunday morning, three o'clock in the morning, I was getting off a bus in Fort Polk, Louisiana. 
I was in the army. I was three months into, well, five months into being 16 years old. I was a sophomore in high school. I was getting high every day, but I wasn't shooting up. And I got stationed back then. It was 1973 and they were still sending people to Vietnam. That was the last year of the draft. I requested to go to Europe because I didn't want to go to Vietnam. And I got stationed in Europe, in Germany, where I was born. And one weekend we went to Amsterdam, which where I just came from two days ago. I've been in Amsterdam for the last two weeks. I went to Amsterdam and one weekend while I was in Germany and stuck a needle in my arm, I crossed the line. So I saw these people getting high. They were shooting up. And I thought, wow, that looks pretty interesting. I mean, they are serious about getting high. And I was serious about getting high. I said, I want to try it. And I asked the guy, give me a shot. Turns out he was my first sponsor. And I say that he wasn't a sponsor in recovery, but he was my sponsor in my addiction. And I look back in retrospect and I see that we all already practice many of the skills that we're being asked to practice in recovery, like getting a sponsor. That guy was my sponsor because he showed me how to do it. He showed me how to get high. He injected me. He told me how much and how little and how little to use. I got phone numbers and used them. I was willing to turn my will and my life over to a power greater than myself. In this case, it was heroin. I had faith because I fronted a lot of people money. I gave people money. They told me to wait on the corner. I waited, having faith that they were going to come back with what they promised. I did drugs from people I didn't know, having faith that it wasn't going to kill me. And more importantly, I kept coming back. I kept coming back. And those are the same kind of skills that they say we need in recovery. And I look back now and I realized I already had those skills before I got here. So yeah, and so once I did the heroin, I decided this is what I'd been looking for my whole life. This was the ultimate high. And I committed myself. I said right then and there that I'm going to do this every chance I get. And I did. I did every day I could until I was 29, from 16 to 29 years old, I used. And my motivation for getting clean, and in the beginning, it was great. It was fun. I loved it. I was proud to be an addict. And it started off as a friend, became an employer, and then became a slave master. And I felt in the end that I had no choice. In the last five years of my using, I was absolutely miserable. I mean, I wanted to stop so bad, Ashley, I I can't tell you. But I didn't know anybody that used like me that was clean. It's 1986. I'm living in a, I started off in San Francisco. I left Chicago when I was 19, moved to San Francisco, started off in Pacific Heights and wound up in the Tenderloin. And I remember being there ashamed of what I had become, disgusted with what I had become and thinking, I hope I just, I don't care if I don't live to see another day. My only reason to be alive was for my son. So yeah, that's how it all started for me. And I had a moment of clarity on January 8th, 1986, sitting on the dock of the bay in San Francisco in a Buick Electra 225 at six o'clock in the morning with my son in the back seat, and his mom in the front seat. And I looked at him in the rearview mirror and I thought, If I don't get clean, this boy don't have a chance. And I'm adopted. I never had a father. And he was my first blood. I loved my son with all my might, as much as I could love anything. I realized that if I didn't stop using, what was going to happen to him? And I said that morning, I looked at him in the rearview mirror, and I looked at myself, and out of the blue, I said, God, help me. And I was not, I didn't understand. It wasn't a God of my understanding, because I didn't understand God. I didn't have a relationship with God. I didn't even like God. So I don't know where that came from. But that prayer came out of me for 35 years, 10 months, clean and sober. My experience is that if you ask anybody who's been clean and sober for a long time, most of them can tell you the exact moment that they said, God help me, their version of that prayer. They can tell you the exact moment, not uh, maybe it was a couple months ago, or maybe it was a year ago. I think I no, they'll know the exact moment. I was in my car in front of my mom's house. It was Thursday night. I mean, they'll remember that. And so I remember like it was yesterday. So and I, I said, God, yep. I, you remember? Yeah, I remember the ceiling of the hospital and saying like, I'm 19 and that I've given my whole life everything and it still isn't working and I'm still in the hospital. And I remember looking at the ceiling. Yeah. And I, I love asking people that to hear people's story when they tell that surrender story. Anyway, I still used right after I said that prayer, I used, I had drugs with me. So I learned over time that God's delay is not God's denial. 
Like, you know, it just I think my higher power heard my prayer, but the way the prayer got answered was not for me to stop that day. Once I finished using, I had to get more money to use more. I was the last of my drugs, and I went out and started trying to get some money and got arrested. And that arrest resulted in me going to potentially going to prison, which that sentence got modified for me to do a year in county jail and then go to a two-year-long treatment center after that year. I did six months of that year. I'm a veteran, so I wound up, instead of having to go to two very long-term programs in San Francisco, I got a chance to go to the Veterans Administration program in Menlo Park, and I went to the VA. I was getting high in jail, and on June 9th, 1986, I was using, and um, I missed. I'm using IV. I missed in my hand. I was disgusting, blood stripping all down my pants leg on my white trusty uniform. I felt so horrible. Everybody else was high and no more drugs. And I said, oh man, screw this. I hate this stuff. The next day they said, Williams, roll it up. And they put me in a car in handcuffs and took me to Menlo Park to the treatment center. And I haven't had a drink or a drug since then. That was June 10th, 1986. I had no career path. I never was really a worker. I was always getting high. That was my job, trying to get money to get high. So I sold drugs and I was a shoplifter and I did all kinds of stupid stuff. Never any violent stuff, just petty. I was petty and I barely got by, but I did. And so when I got into the rehab, they had a vocational component to the program. They said, well, what do you want to do for work? You need to get a job. What are you going to do? And I said, well, I want to be a counselor like Richard. Because my counselor, his name was Richard Lindsay. His name is still alive. I, I love this man. Best therapist I ever met in my life to this day. And you know, I've seen a lot of therapists since then. I know a lot of therapists. And he said, uh, the guy said, well, no, well, you can't be a counselor. Nobody's going to hire you. And dismissive. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. You ask me what I want to do. That's what I want. He said, never. You don't have a chance in hell. He said, here, take this paperwork. He sent me to Moffitt Field. And my first job, I worked in the lawn and garden department at Moffitt Field carrying peat moss and uh, soil to people's cars. And I had three raises, Ashley, and I didn't make $5 an hour. Three raises and still didn't make $5 an hour. But I was I was determined that I was going to get to be, I was going to be a counselor. I had an opportunity to volunteer at a Salvation Army program in Redwood City. That was my first job. The girl that was the facilitator of the group, I was a volunteer. And um, But the girl who was the therapist started smoking weed and they um, had to let her go. And so the, the guy from the Salvation Army said, well, look, we're going to find another counselor to take Evelyn's place. But can you stay on until we find somebody? I said, sure. And the clients asked them, hey, can Roland be our counselor? And that was my first paid position. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. And then before you know it, I, I started really getting into it. I realized at 13 months clean that I didn't know what I was doing. I felt like many people working in this field at some point, I think, should feel like an imposter, should question. Am I really qualified to be doing this? Because if you don't question that, I, I would be a little concerned about you. I've gone on to be the, the director of chemical dependency studies at Cal State East Bay. I've taught at UC Santa Cruz, San Jose State, UC Berkeley, University of Utah. I mean, I've taught addiction studies all over the place. I think every counselor or every person working as a caregiver in that capacity at some point should question whether or not you ought to be doing this. So I questioned it early. It got really clear that I didn't know what I was doing. And I had to make a decision, either go back to doing what I knew how to do, which was use, or learn how to do this correctly. And so I went to school, went to San Jose State and completed the addiction studies program, became part of the advisory committee for the addiction studies program, eventually start teaching there. As you know, I've been training people. I still do a lot of training for other clinicians. And I've been, I got introduced to Terrence Gorski. In 1990, when I went and took the relapse prevention training myself, because I was very interested in relapse. You know, if had I um, not stayed clean and sober that first five years, I was going to prison. So I was obviously really interested in relapse prevention. <laughs> <laughs> Real interested. Yeah. I took the course and um, I said, I love this. And Terry asked me if I would be interested in being part of the faculty. And so I became part of the faculty for the Gorski Synapse Relapse Prevention Training in 1991. And now I'm actually the co-owner of the company. Terry Gorski passed away two years ago. 
And he was a beautiful man who was a major contributor to our business. And I continued all these years to be part of the faculty, but myself and a couple of my colleagues, Teresa and Lisa, we decided that we were going to keep this going. And so we bought the company. And so we're still doing trainings and keeping his legacy alive. I love that. I love that. And, and I've taken that train. I've actually technically done it twice because I filmed it a second time. It's an incredible training. Relapse. It's one thing we talk a lot about this one thing to get sober, right? Like literally, you know, someone could put you in a detox, whatever, and get sober. And then it's another thing to stay sober. And as you were saying, there are, it is understood when I meet someone who has five years sober versus 10 years sober versus 15 years sober, I know because I've been sober for, you know, 16 years, I know what it takes to get 10. I know what it takes to get 15. You know what it takes to get 30, to get 35, right? There's, there are life things that happen over the course of that period of time that none of us are able to avoid. Once you experience that. You have to really engage those tools because you're far enough away from a drink and a drug. And you're such a different person than you were when you're using that if you don't engage those tools and remember who you were and why this is important, it's easy to forget, right? Absolutely. So the Gorski Synap, the training was incredible because it maps, and you can talk about this, like you map a relapse. Like a relapse is a process. It's not an event. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, I mean, it's not easy to stay clean. It's easy to get clean. It's hard to stay clean. And as, as life circumstances show up and people get challenged in ways that they never expected to be challenged, just look at the last couple of years. Just look at between all the political strife, between the fires in California, between COVID and the lockdown, and now the war. I mean, the, the country, the world is just beat up and exhausted and drained and depleted. And it's been really, I mean, you must know a lot of people who have struggled through this process and some didn't survive it. I mean, I, I, you know, rest in peace, Leslie Fightmaster. Leslie Fightmaster is a friend, sober 25 years, yoga instructor, big YouTube yoga instructor. I mean, knew her my whole sobriety, you know, mom, Orange County, whatever. And she, the disease took her. It was like, it literally wasn't, you, you couldn't imagine that. You couldn't imagine. But I think what has gone on in the world and, and with, you have a really great perspective because you've been traveling around in the addiction world. And I'd love to hear about more globally what you've seen because I, you know, I know from people in America and different areas what it looks like um, in terms of fentanyl, in terms of, of what we're seeing in terms of relapse. But on a global scale, you, I'd love to hear about your perspective on like, what does addiction look like in 2022 in the world right now? Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting is that the U.S. is kind of a, people look to the U.S. for guidance in a lot of areas. So how we do treatment, we're usually way ahead. So a lot of treatment programs are way behind when it, in different parts of the world in terms of their curriculum, and in terms of their protocol, in terms of their services, in terms of the qualifications of their staffing. So in some of the Western countries, like in um, European countries and some Latin countries, some Asian countries, you might see a mostly in the European countries, you'll see something quite comparable. But in some of the other, where English is not the primary language, you would see struggles with things that we take for granted. Like it's hard to find a psychiatrist in some countries that has addiction training. It's hard to find a, a hospital that'll do a detox. No even knows what to do with a person who's on detox. It can be very difficult for people that are native to that country to do things that we take for granted, like go and tell somebody that you have a problem and ask for help. Like say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a drug addict and I need some help. I'm destroying my life. Admitting that you're powerless actually brings shame to people's family. So that's the last thing we would want you to do is bring shame or negative attention to yourself, turning your will and your life over to God or going somewhere and asking for help or going somewhere and talking about all this stuff in your family. They don't do that in a lot of places. And so it's harder for people to access treatment. The stigma is really, really high in a lot of places. Like it's kind of trendy to be in recovery here. 
it's kind of cool to be an addict and be in recovery. In a lot of places, that's a source of a lot of humiliation and shame. It speaks of you as a failure. I remember and once we had a delegation from Russia, actually, coincidentally, 30 years ago, come and visit our treatment program, that hospital program that I mentioned. They were doing a tour of U.S. treatment centers to kind of get some tips on how to operate. And I was talking to one of the Russian doctors and a therapist, and we were talking, and I've been to Moscow, I've been to Russia, and I've watched how they approach recovery for the limited amount of time that I saw. And I've done trainings in Russia via Zoom. But anyway, what the guy said is, I said, well, how's drinking over there? He said, oh, well, drinking's okay. You know, people don't mind if you drink, you know, as long as you can hold your alcohol. So you can drink every day. That's fine. You're not an alcoholic. You're not an alcoholic until you, you can't drink like a gentleman that, you know, drink and you turn into something different. So I think that addiction, depending on what country you're in, looks very much like it looks now. So they don't have the same kind of fentanyl issue. Like I just left the Netherlands right now and the most prominent um, drugs of choice there continue to be alcohol, marijuana products like hash and weed, which is very, very concentrated compared to what we use, what they consider soft drugs, um, mescaline and hallucinogenics and stimulants. They're not seeing, and heroin, of course, they're not seeing the fentanyl yet over there, like we're seeing here, the proliferation of fentanyl being laced with things like cocaine. Like that still baffles me. Who I it? don't even get it. Yeah. Are you just trying to kill people? Yeah, um, it, it makes no sense to me. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, this opioid epidemic that we're hearing about, apparently the solution to the opioid epidemic is more opioids. Sounds like, you know, it was an opioid epidemic in the black community and the brown community 30 years ago. I don't know how it all of a sudden became an epidemic when it got to the suburbs, I guess. My best friend died of a fentanyl overdose in 1981. So we've had fentanyl in our community forever, but never at the rate that we're seeing it now. Yeah, it's harder. It's hard to get heroin, apparently. And I think with what we're dealing with now is that there's no room for experimentation the way that there used to be. You know, I think about my little kids and like when we started using, it was like, yeah, if you shot heroin, you could overdose, but you weren't going to die the first time you use cocaine. You might die of the addiction from cocaine and so on and so forth. But now this ex like experimentation, trying one Xanax, trying, you know, you hear these awful stories that, you know, you and I hear all the time of once and they die because it's laced with fentanyl. And I think that changes things dramatically for what we're dealing with because you had to put some effort into <laughs> drug use at one point. And it seems like from what I can see that it takes very little effort to become addicted and to be in extreme danger. And people are using it recreationally right now. This blows me away that I've got clients that are using their drug of choice as fentanyl. And that blows my mind. And like you said, one time, you you can't like just like you said, nobody's ever put it that clearly. But you're absolutely right. Experimentation, people don't even have the luxury of going through that. No, uh, no process. Yeah, because one time could be your last time. Right, and that that you know, they're lacing marijuana is being laced with fentanyl. You know, these are the types of things I have been buying and handing out fentanyl test strips to people I know who recreationally use drugs because. I'm like, you have to test your marijuana. You have to test, like seriously, you have to test it just because this is no joke and this is something that we're seeing. You mentioned jokingly, but not jokingly, that the answer to the opioid epidemic is more opioids. And, you know, I've had a bunch of different people talking about what resources are available to the community and to participate in helping this epidemic. What they say is that you know, in these harm reduction cases, in particular, people who've been using for 30 years, who are on the streets, whatever, things like that. Suboxone is a lifesaver for some of these communities where it's just, I mean, they're, nothing else is working. And then they see these people become participating members of society. I know what I think, but I want to know what you think about how it's being used and the uptick 
of use of these substances. I always have to preface my comments on this subject with an admission to the fact that I'm I'm biased. I'm old school. You know, I um, I've been in the rooms as an administrator, as a program director, a program owner. Policymakers are talking about how necessary it is for us to use Suboxone or Methadone or Subutex and, or some form of medication-assisted treatment. More importantly, those types of medication-assisted opiate replacement drugs. I'm saying, and the reason for that is because because these guys can't get clean. You know, that's why we need to do that. They're just going to continue to fail. Look at these dismal outcome studies. Look at these horrible results. And so it's not fair to them to ask them to be abstinent. Abstinence-based treatment is antiquated. It's outdated. It's unfair. It doesn't work. And I'm sitting in the room. They don't know that I'm a former heroin addict. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that. Okay. I'm telling them, wait a minute, you know, I, they can get clean. People do stop using. I stopped using. I know a whole bunch of heroin addicts that stop using. If I had the choice in the beginning to have a little bit every day, just a little bump every day, I would have chosen that. If you say, yeah, well, you don't have to just stop using altogether. You can have a little, a little lightweight. I know that what works for one person doesn't work for another person. So what keeps me clean and sober might get someone else loaded. I'm not naive enough or dogmatic enough to think that my way is the only way to do this. What worked for me is going to work for everybody else. I know that that's not true. I believe that there's a place for harm reduction, medication-assisted treatment. I know that there's a place for that. The issue that I have the most is how, when and how it's used and to what extent. I remember when buprenorphine first came out in the late 90s, late 80s, early 90s, we thought it was amazing, an incredible drug because opioid addicts were able to participate in a treatment episode three days into the program, where prior to that, they were useless for the first week to 10 days. So in those days, programs were 28, 30 days long. And so you wanted them to maximize. That's why the recidivism rate was so high, because people were detoxing for the first 10 days. Now they've got 18 days to learn whatever they need to learn to stay clean and sober. So when buprenorphine first came out, I thought, wow, these, this is great. These guys can participate. So we were excited about it being used for detox. And the problem started when the drug companies started, and I, my impression is that they courted the physicians to prescribe the medication, not just for detox, but for maintenance. Let's keep them on it. Why stop? They're like, if it works, don't fix it. You know, why would you stop something that's working? Let's keep them on it. It'll reduce the cravings. It'll reduce the anxiety. It actually helps with pain. It actually helps with focus. And, you know, one of the things about methadone, methadone itself, switching gears for a second, methadone was... It's kind of like they say it's really good for the client, but methadone was a public health approach to the criminality associated with drug use. They figured I'd rather you be at methadone waiting room at 7 a.m. every morning than breaking in my house at 7 p.m. To subdue the addicts. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I know people that have been on methadone for decades. And did it, does it work for them? Apparently it does. I think there are some cases where people, they've tried everything else. Everything else is not working. So give them this. It gives them a better quality of life. It is a reducing harm. And reducing harm for who? For society and for the client, probably. But I don't think it should be a first course of action. I don't think we should start with someone on, on Suboxone. I don't think we should necessarily medicate symptoms that are appropriate to the circumstances. So cravings are normal for a person who's been drinking and drugging for years, anxiety, sadness, uncomfortable feelings of all kinds are normal. So if we're going to medicate that with the pill, what is the message that we're sending? I've also had to detox tons of people off of Suboxone. So Suboxone is very difficult to come off of, and they don't talk about that. It is also an opiate itself. And then a lot of the places, I was actually at a conference, I won't even mention the conference, but an expert was speaking at the conference. He said two things that forced me to raise my hand. I tried to, actually, I tried to just let him do his thing. And I think, I've been there. He said first that this lady was on 400 milligrams of methadone and that it was an appropriate dose for her. I had a question. I said, did you just say that 400 milligrams of methadone is an appropriate dose for this lady? Tell the audience what a uh, normal. The maximum used to be 80 milligrams. 
There used to be 80 milligrams was the maximum amount of methadone one person could take. Then they start raising it. They decided that there's no reason to, that that might not be a therapeutic dose for some people. And there was no reason for that ceiling. And then they start raising it. The consumer knows that this program will give me 200 milligrams of methadone. This program will give me 250 milligrams of methadone. I probably want to go to the one that's going to give me the most. And anybody who tells you that you don't get high on methadone has never been on methadone. I have been on methadone. And methadone does get you high. That's not necessarily a rush, but you're high all day long on methadone. And you develop a tolerance to it. Obviously, you get used to it. But anyway, that was the first thing he said. And then the second thing that he said was he didn't, if he had a client, one of the requirements for Suboxone is that you're supposed to get counseling in addition to it. It's supposed to be counseling as well as the medication. And this guy who was an expert at a conference said that he didn't think the counseling was necessary. And I was appalled by that. I thought, you know, and then these poor clients that come in there, they're kind of in limbo because a lot of them don't get much clinical support. And I'm, and there are some good medication-assisted treatment programs that are doing the counseling. They put emphasis on the counseling and they're being responsible with the medication, whether it be methadone or, or Suboxone or Subutex or Vivitrol or whatever they're using, they're being responsible. There are some great programs out there, but not all of them are great. And I think that to put a person on, on these drugs and where they're not always welcome in 12-step meetings. And if they're not getting counseling, they don't have their own meetings to go to. They're getting this advice from what's quote-unquote a medical professional, addiction professional. It's confusing and it can be unfair. So in, in a nutshell, I think that Suboxone and Subutex are great. I'm glad they're here. I wish we weren't so quick to prescribe them as a maintenance regimen, as a solution to the opioid problem. And that's what seems to be happening. I think it's great for detox and I think it's great for some people on a maintenance basis, but I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and in the spirit of this being great, let's abandon this idea of abstinence-based treatment and abstinence-based recovery. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you've realized a critical feature in every story is finding a community of supportive people. That community takes many shapes and there is no one size fits all approach. That's where lionrock.life comes in. We host 70 plus meetings a week on a topic that likely matters to you. Those community meetings include things like grief, anger, parenting and recovery, meditation, nutrition, navigating relationships and recovery, and so much more. I think you'll really love it. And I want to give you a chance to try it for free for one month. Go to lionrock.life or download the lionrock.life app, sign up and use promo code courage at checkout for one month free. All the support group meetings you want for one month free. Check it out. Worst case scenario is you meet some great supportive people and you go on your merry way. Okay, back to the show. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your experience helping people get sober in the black and brown communities. I have heard from people, friends of mine, that they feel when they walk into a room, a meeting, and it's a majority white people, particularly in any 12-step or I guess even treatment, that that is an immediate, like, I feel different. Getting sober, is that a different experience in those communities and why? Imagine yourself going into a meeting and there's 100 people in the meeting and there's only two white people. Everybody in the meeting's black. And there's only two white people in the meeting. And one of the white people in the meeting talks and acts like he's black. So you're the only other white person in the meeting and you're like a regular white person. So imagine what that would feel like. See, if you benefit from the status quo, it's hard to have compassion for the people that don't. If you went to the movie and you watched a movie and 95% of the characters in the movie were black, you would think you just went to a black movie. You wouldn't think I just went to the movie, but black people go into and people of color go into situations like this all the time. And when you walk into a room and there's only one other person in the room that looks like you, you're going to feel different. And probably at least 25 percent of the people in the room, just as a rough average, are going to see you as different. And whatever issues they have that they bring to the table related to your race is going to be on display. And whatever issues you bring to the table are going to be on display. 
you know, I've written books and I teach cultural studies, cultural considerations in addiction treatment. I've written a book on relapse prevention for African-Americans, a workbook and a textbook. Because of this issue, you know, Black people, every addict and alcoholic has issues where they feel different. They have issues where they feel they don't trust. They have issues where they feel like they don't fit in. And the reasons for those are different. So people of color, Black people particularly, have a history in this country where they have reasons to suspect that things aren't fair to them. Now, you could argue that, you know, at what point do you stop being a victim and take responsibility for your own actions? Yes, that's absolutely true. But you cannot deny the historic facts that as a community, that Black people have historically been treated like second-class citizens, third-class citizens in some cases. And even though we see some, some evidence that some things are changing, but you can just look at the last two years and you can see evidence that things are still just the same, if not even worse. I mean, we had to watch a guy get murdered on TV by a cop with his knee on his neck for people to really say, okay, maybe you guys are right about this. How many things like that did we see before that happened. See, Black people were never surprised about that. A lot of my white friends are blown away by that. Black people were never surprised. I hate to admit this because it, you know, it's not flattering, but like I had no idea. I didn't really understand and I didn't really see that. And we, you know, with much more, I was around much more Hispanic communities. And when I saw that on, I mean, I was, I felt horrible that I didn't know. I felt horrible that when, when I saw that my African-American friends weren't surprised, it made me sick to my stomach. Like, did I not believe you? Did they not mention it? Did I, you know, I just couldn't believe that people treat each other that way. And it was certainly eye-opening and frightening that our African-American communities were like, we've been trying to tell you. I go back to that saying that if you benefit from the status quo, it's hard to have compassion for those who don't. Like most of us don't think of what it would be like to get be in this room in a wheelchair. Is this room wheelchair accessible? Unless you're in a wheelchair, you don't even think about it. But what it must be like to get on the elevator and be blind and walk across the street as a blind person and all the discrimination and obstacles, the challenges that are associated with your difference. You're being different from mainstream society. And I think that what the way that it relates, when I talk about culture, specifically with African-Americans, what I talk about when I'm working with therapists and clinicians is that, look, we're not going to solve all these social errors. That's not our goal, actually. What we want to do is see how culture is going to impact the person's ability to benefit from treatment. Not every Black person has an issue with being Black. We don't want to make it an issue if it's not an issue. But in order to do treatment, We've got to think is there's something about this person's culture that's going to impact the way they experience treatment. Are they going to feel safe? Are they going to open up? Are they going to talk? Are they going to trust a provider? Do they have the opportunity to express a full range of emotions? Do they have an opportunity to be authentic? Are they going to feel like they belong? Are they going to feel respected and valued in, as a person in your program? And so all of those things are factors. And, and no Black people are the same. There is no one way to look at Black people. So it's like, depending on geographically where people come from, depending on the family that they were raised in, depending on their socioeconomic status, their community, you can't go in and say, this is how I work with Black people. But you wrote a book in a workbook specific to the African-American community, what's in that book that's different? Well, what's in that book is different is some of the specific struggles that African-Americans come up against. You know, like some of the, the messages that we learned early on that we have to unlearn growing up. Some of the reasons that we don't trust. Some of the reasons that Black people in general become addicted. You know, what attracts us to addiction and being all bearing in mind, like I just said, that there is no this doesn't cover all black people, like the different variations of the black experience. The one thing that isn't in common in this is that if we were to do something about women, women have challenges that are different than men's challenges. Do I work with a lot of doctors. Doctors have challenges. They're addicts, too. But they have some specific challenges associated with being a doctor. And so the same thing applies to people from different races and cultures. So you try to isolate some of the things that are common in all struggles, whether it be a struggle with addiction, just a struggle in life, and some things that are specific with that particular group. And the work that I did with the African-Americans, I actually did 
I surveyed over 200 Black clients in treatment, and I gave them a long questionnaire, and I tried to gather some responses from people from all kinds of different walks of life. The one thing they had in common, they were Black, and they were in, in recovery. And what did they see as challenges for them? People had stuff like, I don't see enough role models, Black role models that I have, depending on what kind of community they came from, how they felt about being in recovery. Some people felt like a sellout, some shame some internal and racism becomes internalized. If racism is effective, then you start to believe it. So you got a lot of people who believe that they don't have good hair, that they don't like their features, they don't like the color of their skin. Those things are going to be in the community regardless of addiction, right? Like those types of things. Mm -hmm. When you're coming into addiction treatment and you have the opportunity to address those things, right? And you say, we have to unlearn these things. How is that related to addiction? And how do you unlearn that so that you can get into recovery? That was That's a great question. And so what happens is that, and this is another reason that we have these kind of discussions is so does the client feel safe to talk about everything that they need to talk about without being accused of playing the race card. Like if you were in a, in a group where you have a gay man in the group and he's the only gay man in the group and everybody's talking about their wives and he wants to talk about his husband. Does he feel safe talking about his husband in that group? So the client might come in and say, I feel comfortable talking about my blackness and issues associated with being black. And and then the staff might not feel so comfortable talking about it. Can we not talk about that? Are you going to play the race card again? And other, I did a training for a program and I won't even mention what it was, a big training, big, big training, a lot, a lot of clients. And I was training the staff on how to do a group to address cultural issues. Because I think in a program that's multicultural, you got to talk about, we say, let's focus on the similarities rather than the differences, but you also got to address the differences. How are our difference? How might our differences, you as a young white woman working with a 60 year old black man, as you're the therapist, he's the client, you might want to say, look, we've got some obvious cultural issues here. Do you think that these might pose a challenge to us working together? I really want to help you. So I want to know if we think that these this might be an issue. If so, let's talk about it. And so I'm doing a group for the clients and the staff are sitting in the back watching. And I'm saying that let's talk about racism. Let's talk about your experience with prejudice and racism and culture in this program. And so people are sharing their experience where they felt like the staff didn't listen to them or didn't value them or didn't understand them, didn't, they didn't trust people. Some clients made some racist or sexist remarks, blah, blah, blah. And this relatively young white guy, he's about 33 years old, seemed like a good guy, but he's protested. He said, look, I don't know why we're spending four hours on this topic. You know, he said, I don't even see race. Nobody's ever been prejudiced against me. I don't have an issue with, I'm not prejudiced. And so I don't know why we're even talking about this. This seems like a waste of my time. And I said, so what do you guys think? And people were furious. People thought, yeah, it's fine. It is a waste of your time, but this is, you may not see it, but this is a big issue for us. This is the first time we've I've ever been able to talk about what it felt like being here as the only Black woman in this group. Honestly, he wasn't trying to be rude. He just, it wasn't part of his struggle. And when it's not part of your struggle, it's hard to feel the compassion. When Iraq happened and they sent everybody to Iraq, when it first happened back in the 90s, I, to be honest, Ash, I didn't care much. About, I didn't care much about Iraq. I thought, okay, you know, we're over there trying to get those people's oil. I was suspicious of the agenda. That was probably the extent of it until my son went to Iraq. When they sent my son to Iraq, all of a sudden I got interested in Iraq. And I think that's what happens, that people don't think about culture and and differences and race unless you're impacted by it. And for a lot of Black people, depending on how they live, where they live, how they were brought up, they've been impacted by it their whole life. And so it's not playing the race card. The race card is already played. And and can they talk about it? Here's how I'll sum it up with it. Again, the issue is, is culture, is your Blackness or your gayness or your Jewishness or your whatever difference is, how is it going to impact your ability to benefit from treatment? Because we know that this may be the last chance you ever get. How do you become a person that, you know, both is interested and wants to help people culturally and wants to understand and maybe isn't impacted without finding yourselves in the depths of, oh my God, all these experiences are so painful. What would that feel like? Well, you just think about, you know, I mean, one of the cool things about 
addiction recovery is that most people who are successful in recovery, including, you know, at least so far, you and I, came from our own version of hell. We're all survivors. We all have, and I'm not comparing, you know, you don't want to base your gratitude on someone else's misery. You don't want to think, well, she had it work. I did, so I should be grateful. You should be grateful just because of what you've overcome. You and you and you and you and you, because everybody has had to overcome some very incredible, relatively speaking, challenges to get to where they are today. I mean, people don't just all of a sudden just, you know, they're having a party, they're getting high, everything's great, and they say, okay, I'm going to get clean and sober now. By the time people decide to get clean and sober, it's kicking their butts. You know, usually the party has been over and people have their own history of struggles and challenges and heartbreaks and heartaches and tragedies. And it looks different for different people. So when you look at people of different cultures, they've got the cultural component to it. If you look at people that have survived some physical challenges they've had the accidents or the physical the illnesses that they have to come from if you look at the people that have been gone through trauma they've got whatever kind of traumatic event that happened everybody i mean we see we are when we say in the meetings that you're a miracle it's pretty much true i mean there are a lot of people who have had miraculous recoveries from some horrendous things you know, assaults and rapes and beatdowns and overdoses and riots and, and discrimination and abuse and negligence, all kind of stuff. And so the details get very different depending on your client or your the person that you're talking to. But a lot of us wind up being able to identify with the struggle, identifying with what it feels like to be able to overcome something that seemed insurmountable. We made it through that and we share that in common. I'm a veteran. And I remember going through basic training in the Army. Basic training was, and I got extended because I was messing up. So I actually stayed in that basic training two more weeks. And basic training was horrible. And I thought I was never going to survive this. I mean, for me, it was horrible. I'm a, I was 16, 17 years old. It was horrible. And But when we graduated, it was horrible for all of us. For most 90% of us, it was just ass whooping for like two months. And But when it was over, actually, all of us, I don't care what, how old, what part of the country we came from, what race, what religion, none of that stuff. We all felt like together we were a group of survivors that we did it. We made it. And I think that's what people feel like in recovery. The stories are different. You know, if you listen to each one's story, you think, oh, my God, this guy's never going to get claimed. How is he ever going to survive from all the terrible stuff that he's gone through? We've heard it in heartbreaking stories, but we've seen people with some time that have come from heartbreaking stories like you, like me. I think one of the things, you know, being in, in watching for so many years, I continue to be surprised at who gets sober. It is not always the person who does it perfectly who wants it so badly, you know, who's desperate for it. I thought for a long time that like, this is what it has to look like and been amazed at how small things can affect, how small behaviors or thought patterns or different things make a huge difference. And, and uh, you know, my aunt who you and I, our, our history together is, is you around, you know, you were the first clinical director of Lion Rock Recovery, one of the, the, the early investors. And, and you took care of my aunt who passed away from addiction, which was originally how you came in contact with my family. And I always think to myself, you know, when I look at Karen, who my aunt who who died of this disease, we had so much in common and, you know, growing up and what it, what it looked like for us. And the difference between me and her was that I was angry and she was sad. And my anger was fuel towards change in a way that looked like corruption and disruption and mean and trouble and defiance, but it was anger. And because I was angry enough, I survived long enough to turn it into fuel to, to say, I'm not, fuck you, I'm not doing this. Like, I'm going to live a life. And, you know, if you held us next to each other, the one who was kinder and, and you know, which was her and, and gentler, and I would have thought that that would have made the difference. And it's things like that that are interesting to watch over the course of time, like who sticks around. And it is different for, for everyone, but there are some key things that make a difference. And that introspection of, you know, you talked about this some 
minute ago or a little bit ago, which was, you know, there are times in recovery when you feel like you're using, right? Like I have hit bottoms in recovery that were extraordinarily painful and I could not fathom not using through them. I didn't, but it crossed my mind and I've used other things in their place. And I think it's important that we talk about part of recovery is understanding that your disease is going to try to morph. And so the work, and you told me this years and years ago, which is you have to update your recovery to your life. The recovery you had, you told me this, Ashley, the recovery you had at one year sober is not the same program you need at 10 years, at 15 years with two kids, you know, the single those are two different things. And it's stuck with me because for a long time I had outdated recovery and it caused me a lot of pain. Can you talk a little bit about how your experience with that and updating, needing to update your recovery? Yeah, I'll say that kind of what you just said, what, what keeps you clean today might not keep you clean in two years. You have to keep your recovery fresh. Your recovery needs to address your issues. If your recovery program isn't addressing your issues, it's just busy work. It might be great stuff to do, but if it's not solving the job, if you've got issues with gambling, with eating, with violence, with shopping, and then you're just going to four AA meetings a week, that's great stuff to do, but it's not addressing the issues. So you may need to kind of tailor your program. In my experience, most of the time when people relapse is that they relapse doesn't mean that you failed. It means your recovery program needs to update. So we need to get in there and look at what kind of modifying do we need to do in order to make your recovery program more applicable to your current situation. I believe what's so important in this work that we do is that we really get to know what's going on with people right here and right now. You know, take each person as an individual, do a thorough assessment from the beginning, say, you know what I've been doing mostly lately in the last five or 10 years of my career and my work is I listen more and I talk less. So you probably hard to know that from as much as I'm talking on this because I'm mindful of the time. But when I'm in a clinical session and even facilitating a group, I do a lot more listening. So I ask the people before, when we first meet, before I even pick up the pen and paper, I ask him, tell me your story, because I don't want to make any assumptions. I want to base on what you look like, what's going on for you. You know, what's your, what's your story based on how you look or how you sound? So I listen and then they tell me their story and I let them know in the beginning. I may interrupt not to be rude, just to get more clarification. I'm not listening to respond. I'm listening to understand. So it's a different kind of active listening. I'm listening to understand. I want to be sure I'm hearing this right. Once I have an idea of what your particular challenges are, whether it be related to race or culture or trauma or drug of choice or age or coexisting mental health condition. Once I have an idea of what we're dealing with, then we can start thinking about, you know, what would be a next step in terms of some sort of treatment or some sort of support. What might you need or what might you benefit from? And I'm not going to assume that I'm the expert. You know, I'm not going to assume that I'm the expert of your life and your experience. So, and I think that everybody, as you talked about with your motivation compared to Karen, like you, the anger actually turned out to be a motivator for you. And the sadness maybe turned out to be a prohibitor for Karen. May she rest in peace. God bless her. But what I've learned over the years that if the price is right, everybody will stop. We don't always know what the price is. We don't know. And, you know, it's obviously not money. It might not be a relationship, but there's a price for everybody. At some point, they is say, it death for some people? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, everybody will stop eventually. The trick is to stop while you're still alive. And so, you know, sometimes it's the threat of death, but oftentimes not. You know, death, again, is not a deterrent for us. We don't, we're not scared to die most of the time. So part of our job, our exploration, our curiosity as providers, as helpers, is that go on a journey with the client to, to help them discover what do you think it would take for you to stop? Like, what would it what would it take for you to say, I'm willing to give this up? You know, they say that drugs can make you give up the people you love, but the people you love can make you give up drugs also. So it, it, it could be anything. And so we do, we keep an open mind and we listen to the part. Like for me, it was my kid. It wasn't my looks. It wasn't my bank account. It wasn't my relationship. It wasn't my health. It was my kid. I know people have gotten clean and sober because of a dog. 
I mean, not to minimize dogs. I don't know if you can hear. I got a bulldog snoring on the floor right now. <laughs> but it could be anything. So we try to help people find out under what circumstances would you stop. And one of the cool things about, as you probably remember from the relapse prevention work, one of the cool things about working with someone who's had a relapse is that you can see in their history with getting clean and using and getting clean and using, you can see under what circumstances they'll stop. And what under what circumstances will they start again? What will cause them to use and what will cause them to stop? We can map that out. I had a client once and I kicked him out of the program. I was the director of the program and he was just acting out all over the place. He wouldn't do any of the stuff we told him to do. I discharged him. I threatened him. He still didn't do it. He was very defiant. And I said, look, you got to go. I said, you come back when you're serious about being clean and sober because you're obviously not serious about your recovery. Every year, this guy would call me and say, just want you to know, Mr. Williams, Mr. Know-it-all, that I've been clean for a year. Click. And he would call me on two years. Just want you to know, Mr. Williams, now I've been clean for two years. So I guess you don't know everything, huh? Click. And so after about six years of this, we start laughing about it. He would call us, oh, no, not the call again. He said, yep, yep. And this guy, for the first two or three years, he stayed clean just to spite me. That's what I tell you. He just wanted to show me that I was wrong. And I say, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. It's. I had a mentor who said, I'll never forget, I was like eight months sober. And I was like, well, when I take my year or something. And he looked at me and he was like, well, I mean, if you make it, you're not going to... I, I was aghast, aghast. And it was like, it played in my head. And you know, how many times I've stayed sober so that I don't have to take a newcomer trip? How many times I've stayed sober because of some trivial reason, but you'll never know because it just added another day. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why it's, it's just that I did. Roland, what is the best recovery advice you were ever given? It was actually the advice has to do more with relapse, but it helped me to stay clean and sober. One of the biggest relapse warning signs of all is to people overestimate their recovery and they underestimate their disease. And that has been stuck with me forever. That, you know, we think that we're doing better than we're doing and we forget how powerful this disease really is. In closing, Ashley, can I just make a quick plug for the synapse? Yes. yes. We're doing the synapse training. It's a virtual five-day advanced relapse prevention certification training. And it's going to be in June and one in October. And it's an amazing training. We, you, you've been through it. You know what it's like. It's a really incredible training in a virtual format. It is very efficient, works wonderful. And so the information about that is on the Synapse website. And the Synapse website is spelled C-E-N-A-P-S.com. And your listeners would take a look at that. And I have a couple of books. I wrote a workbook um, a couple of years ago called Recovery is a Verb. And it's a workbook for people seeking recovery. It's got all kinds of assignments and exercises in it to help people solidify their actual recovery program. And then I have a couple of books related to African-Americans and addiction treatment. One is a textbook, Relapse Prevention for African-Americans, and one is a workbook, Relapse Prevention Workbook for African-Americans. And I do consulting with programs and individuals, and I have a professional support group. And my website is rolandwilliamsconsulting.com. Yay. Yeah, I love you a lot. And it's so good to see you. So good to see you. I told you it would work online. <laughs> you did. <laughs> yeah, I, I told, told you. you. I, look, I told you everybody's going to be doing this in a couple of years. Little did we know. <laughs> you were like, we can't do this online. I'm like, it works just fine. Yeah. It works just fine. I love you so much. You. I'll Say call hi you. to Peter. I will. I will. Well, I'll call you to catch up. I mean it. I will. Good. Bye, Ash. Bye. Hello, everybody. We are doing something a little bit different here today. That's me too. It's that guy, Scott Drockelman, the producer. This is my idea. This is my half-baked idea. <laughs> so you can, as with anything, you can kind of blame it on me if you want to. But well, you know, I was kind of describing this to Ashley where it's like, you know, you watch a movie in the movie theater and then you're walking out and you get to be like, yeah, Ryan Gosling, man, he was killer in that, right? Like sometimes that's kind of a nice <laughs> little uh, moment to have there at the end of the movie is, oh my God. It's a very PG version of what I would say about <laughs> Ryan Gosling. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. And I'm not, I'm not saying that I haven't had those similar conversations. You know, I'm not here to say that. <laughs> he just, he has those powers. No judge. He yeah, has those powers. He, he has those powers and those abilities. So we just got done with Roland Williams. That guy, I think, knows everything in the whole world, which is super mm -hmm. impressive to me. Mm -hmm. I know you have more experience with him, but I sort of saw him as sort of like a 
oh, I don't know, like a demigod, something. <laughs> some uh, sort of some sort of addiction wizard, perhaps. Addiction I don't know. wizard is, is yeah. accurate. He seemed like if I was in his program in some way that he yeah. could just he could just look right through me and see the uh-huh. truth. That is oh, that yes. kind of his deal. He's been doing this long enough that he knows uh, he can see it all. Yeah, he he's awesome, and his knowledge is you know it's hard earned. I think that's what makes it such deep, you know, palpable wisdom is that it's he has the experience he has the education he has been treating it for many many years including his own you know so he just he embodies all of those pieces of recovery and and i know he still works at it right it's not it's not a dormant thing for him you know i just he he's a wonderful human and a wonderful mentor and i just i love talking to him i want to say that if you heard this and you're interested in some of the work that Roland has done and doing some of the relapse prevention that we talked about, the best workbook to do if you're in recovery, check out Relapse Prevention Counseling Workbook, Practical Exercises for Managing High-Risk Situations. You can buy it on Amazon and it is awesome. It is awesome for um, doing the relapse mapping and really, really giving your recovery that extra insurance. And uh, I bring that up because it's by Terrence Gorski, who Roland and I talked about in the episode. Love that. No, that's a great resource. And we'll throw that in the show notes as well. The other thing that we wanted to do was just give like a two-second uh, reminder about LionRock.life because if you're like me, you don't pause shows in the middle. Do you, Ashley? Do I pause them? And the- I do. <laughs> I do pause them in the middle I because I'm doing stuff. But yeah, no, just uh, wanted to remind you too about LionRock.life. That community is incredible. I have gotten to sit in on a bunch of those meetings and they're just amazing. I Even just as somebody who's just kind of checking them out and seeing what they are, they were super welcoming. And I just felt like, oh, right. These are my people right here. This is awesome. So uh, just a reminder that promo code Ashley the promo code for Lion Rock Life or LionRock.life, depending on whether or not you're using your computer or you're using the app, is courage. So you get a free month of 70 plus meetings a week. The support groups there are extremely diverse. You can find anything that pertains to you or what is going on with you. You can find workshops taught by master's level clinicians, You know all different types of recovery. And it's just an incredible community. And you can try it free for uh, a month with the discount code COURAGE. Mm, love that. Love that. And the new thing that you can wait for at the end of every episode is Scott's terrible joke of the week. <laughs> Ashley, are you ready for Scott's terrible joke of the week? I am so ready. Let me preface this by saying that I'm a father of two. And so that is my sensibilities. And so this might be the part where you cut it off in every episode and every future mm. episode. But mm, this one, mm. I I liked this one. Okay, Strong dad joke. I feel yes, it coming. It's coming. So that, I got to give you that wind up. All right, Ashley. So uh, what's a pirate's favorite letter? R. Oh my gosh. You'd think that, but it'd be the C. <laughs> oh, oh God, it hurts. It it's hurts. So it's so bad. It's so, oh, it's so painful. <laughs> oh my God. Oh gosh. Oh man. (laughs) So good. It's so good. Okay. Please let us know. I need a a thumbs up or a thumbs down on if you want dad jokes, painful dad jokes. It's amazing. It's amazing. Oh my gosh. Well, we're rooting for you this week and uh, we will catch you again soon. Bye, guys. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.